I'm excited to introduce uh, Wally uh, to y'all. It's, it's fun to introduce friends to friends. So, uh, growing up, I moved around a lot. My dad worked at IBM. Um, gosh, in the uh, late 60s, early 70s, maybe, we moved to New Orleans, Louisiana, got involved with the Aurora United Methodist Church. I uh, went to junior high and started high school, didn't finish there, uh, got involved in Young Life and, and a, a bunch of Christian things. And uh, Wally was a, a part of that very process. Um, so uh, I remember our church used to have revivals and lay witness mission meetings. And uh, some of you that have been there for a long time remember some of those. And, and I remember um, that. Uh, Wally and I and another guy, Russell Edwards, that uh, just about every time there was an altar call for the youth, we were up there huddled together, crying, hugging, you know, we're going to do better, we're going to try, we're going to you know, all those things you do as a kid. I uh, think that whatever you're doing is awful and, and uh, all of that. So uh, we had, a, we had a, a friendship connection, um, but we also had this spiritual uh, connection. Uh, well, halfway through my junior year in high school, we moved to Atlanta, um, and I came back, I think, one time to uh, visit, and Wally came uh, to visit us in, um, in Atlanta, and then we went to college and lost touch. Uh, Facebook was a fun thing uh, when it launched, and I reconnected with some of my New Orleans friends. Um, but it did a long gap. And then uh, out of the blue one day, I got a call uh, that Wally was in Atlanta. He was uh, in seminary. Wally had, uh, he went to LSU, right? He had gone to LSU and, and uh, um, uh, went into the insurance uh, business. And you know, I, I went right into seminary and all of that and, and church work. And then uh, so Wally calls and he says he's at, uh, he's in seminary in Atlanta. I think it was New Orleans, had a campus here, Baptist Seminary. And um, and so my first question was, what happened? <laughs> we were Methodist and you went for Baptist Dark Side. <laughs> uh, and then, um, and so we, he was here in Atlanta. We reconnected, we got to know each other a little better, uh, caught up on things. And then while we went to, uh, uh, work at Johnson Ferry Baptist Church uh, as the minister of men, which uh, I was super excited about, but also super jealous because uh, at the churches I was pastoring, you know, there's when you're pastoring the church, there's all these opportunities that you just can't fund. Uh, you you know, you'd love to have a minister to this and a minister to that, and you know, have all these programs. You know, the need is there. Uh, but trying to figure that out. So it was fascinating talking to Wally about uh, being a minister to men and developing that. And, and it was clear that Wally had a passion for that, done a job. And so he's moved around a couple of places after that. But uh, we've been able to play golf, we've been able to reconnect. And it's just uh, kind of a cool thing. We had uh, this really tight, fun friendship when we were uh, younger, going through all the junior high and high school stuff. And uh, uh, and being able to reconnect now at, at this time would be fun. And so uh, Wally uh, is now retired, uh, kind of, sort of, kind of like me, playing around with a couple different things. And uh, uh, we, uh, uh, after he left Johnson Superior Baptist, went back to Texas, uh, he's now recently come back here. So it's uh, fun to have him uh, here. And uh, I'm excited to introduce him to y'all and let you get to know him too. So Wally, I'd love to hear from you this morning. Hi, right, well, it is good to be here with you guys today. Um, give you a little bit more filling the dots of my background and so that you can kind of get a, a perspective of where it come from. Uh, as Jeff mentioned, we did go to Aurora United about this together in New Orleans for quite some time. Uh, Jeff, I was trying to remember it was sophomore year or junior year, but I remember when Jeff left and moved to Dunwoody, it was a real loss for me because uh, Jeff was a good friend that I really um, 
enjoyed a lot, uh, not only through school, but also through uh, through church. And so we reconnected. I knew that they were in Georgia. I knew that he had not left. Paul did not left Georgia. He had a oil company, worked for Texaco. So we moved around quite a bit, one Fort Worth, Houston, New Orleans, uh, Denver. He went to after I graduated and then back to retired in Houston. But I wanted to reconnect with Jeff. So there was a mutual friend, a guy named Bill Castleberry, that knew Jeff's raw, Jeff's, Jeff's dad, T, and uh, through him was able to reconnect. So thankful for that. Um, you know, growing up in church, uh, honestly, I'm honest, we went to church because my mom, uh, she demanded that we be in church on Sunday mornings. Um, probably many of you were that way. Uh, dad and I, uh, Acquiesced and went to the early service so we could go play golf the rest of the day. And uh, that's, that's pretty good. He was on the golf course Saturday and Sunday, and I was out there with him Sunday, getting as many rounds of golf in as we could. Um, so, church was a uh, an interest, but I wasn't overly spiritually interested, if you will. So, uh, the lessons that my mom taught me, uh, that a couple of them weren't correct, and we'll teach these, but we'll talk about these. but God helps those who help themselves. We all think that's in the Bible, right? You find that all the time that people think that. And it's not in the Bible. It's not true. So God helped those who help themselves. And I remember asking her about this concept of heaven. How do you know that when you die, you get to go to heaven? And her response to that was, well, you live a good life, and then you hope that the good outweighs the bad, and that's how you know you get to heaven. Well, obviously, another lie. We're going to talk about misconceptions and lies that we believe today and the impact that they have upon us. But uh, that puts a ton of pressure on somebody. So if it's to be, it's up to me. And if um, if I live a good enough life, I'll get to go to heaven. Tremendous amount of weight you carry or burden with that because you're always evaluating your every action, your every motive. You're always saying, okay, if something's going to happen, I've got to be the one that makes it happen. Really, what it does is it leaves God outside of the equation. So as Jeff said, um, I guess it was our sophomore year that led with this mission, and a bunch of guys from uh, involved with Campus Crusade at LSU came and spoke at the church, and there was one guy that uh, took me aside that weekend, and three different times he went through a little track that they called the Fourth Bridge of Loss. And I knew what he was saying was true, but the real question was, was I willing to give up control of my life because that's what I saw it as. And so finally that weekend, Jess just said, went forward, made a decision, uh, and tried to take advice with my life. But for a good four years, I just thought that that's all there was. Okay, I got my fire insurance, right? Now when I die, I don't go to hell, I get to go to heaven. But I didn't know there was anything to the, spirit, uh, to the spiritual realm, anything more that Christ had to offer us other than when we die, we get to go to heaven. And so it was my son, I guess my uh, junior year at LSU that God really began to get a hold of several guys in our fraternity. I was involved with the fraternity there. Uh, and several of those guys had just transformed our fraternity. Several guys were involved in ministry to this day as a result of what God was doing at that time. But it was really then that I began to grow because a guy on the crusade staff took me under his wing and cycled me for two years. So um, post college, we moved to Houston. I met my wife at a church function there. Uh, we had an employee benefits company where uh, we worked with corporations to uh, package together their health benefits, their uh, 401k retirement programs, whatever the case may be. And then uh, in 19, let's see, that would have been in 1996, my business partner, I was in Houston, he was in San Antonio, was killed in a car wreck. And so in that time, I was 40 at the time, God began to work in my life to say, you know, Wally, you can uh, pursue. Uh, the business, you pursue riches, but that's not what's going to satisfy you. What I've wired you for is men's ministry. So specifically, I felt a call on my life uh, to men's ministry and talked to a guy here at Johnson Ferry, a guy named Brian Wright, right from the heart. He had been in the church that we were at in Houston for a while before uh, coming to Johnson Ferry. We began to talk, and about nine months later, amazingly, I was on their staff as their first full-time men's minister. 
so we did that, and then we moved to a church plant, and then we the place made out in West Cobb, and then we went back to Houston to help a friend of mine there who needed an executive pastor. So we did that for uh, from, for about seven or eight years in Houston, and then came back here because grandkids happen, right? And so my wife to manage because okay, this is time for us to go back to Georgia. We've got a son in Greenville, South Carolina that works for BMW. We've got a daughter that uh, works uh, at another church in West Cobb called North Star, and she does her special needs ministry from uh, kids with severe disabilities from little all the way up to adults and runs their Tim Tebow night and die. So that's what she does. So it's given us a chance to get back and be near the grandkids. But uh, at 65, I was not ready uh, to retire. I know that if I retire, completely. Uh, I'll sit around on the couch all day and uh, and just waste away. That's just because I'm just high strung meant to do things. And so I'm not ready to retire yet. So in coming back, I had been exposed to radical mentoring because some of the key guys at Johnson Ferry had gone through that. I knew of the ministry uh, in the last two years. We did that at my church. So I talked to the guys there and said, look, would it be helpful for you to have a guy who's done this ministry all these years to kind of be a liaison at the churches for you to help them uh, to talk about different things and even represent you? And they said, hey, that'd be great. We would love that. So that's what I'm doing now, consulting, if you will, uh, and really enjoying that because I get to be involved with guys still. Um, and so, um, you know, I, there is a crisis today. I remember a young guy approached me one time. He goes, you know, where are all the older guys from faith? And guys like us have so much to offer because we've been down the road. We know uh, the detours that you don't want to take. We know shortcuts that you can take. But we've got a foundation that we can pass on to younger guys. And that's really what it's about, sharing our life with them. So today what I want to talk to you about, that's a little bit about this. But today what I want to talk to you about is <clears throat> the crippling impact that lies and half-truths and deception have on our life. You know, somehow we think um, that when Jesus uh, rose from the grave, that all spiritual warfare ended, right? I mean, that's just a lie that we believe, that, that everything's great, everything's the way it should be. And that is going to happen one day, but it hadn't happened yet. And so the evil one uses these uh, deceptions, if you will, to talk, teach us truths or untruths about God and ourselves. They cripple us in our walk. And I want to talk to you about that. But before I do, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be here today. I thank you for these guys. I pray, Lord God, that you would speak to our hearts and to our minds. Help us to see um, where we've latched on to perhaps some untruths in our lives or um, some things that, that may have partial truth that just aren't really... Uh, lining up with your word. I pray that you would help us to see those things so that we might, as you say in Ephesians 3.20, experience life abundantly uh, that you have for us from the power of your son Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. So um, I've been in ministry for about seven years at Johnson Ferry and had a lot of key lay leaders back in time. Anybody ever go through ministry eternity uh, by a guy named Robert Lewis out of Little Rock? Great programs, three-year program, uh, a little dated now, but one of the guys came up to the table like this, and we talked after we watched the video, and one of the guys came up to me and said, you know, Wally, I have guys coming up to me saying that I think that Christ under-promised or over-promised and under-delivered when he said that I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. And if you know what he's talking about, he's referring to John 10, 10. It says, I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. But the first half of that chapter, he's talking about how Jesus is the good shepherd and that we're like a sheep and he talks to us and that we listen. But then he goes into, however, in John 10, 10, there is a thief. And the thief comes to steal and to kill and destroy. But I, Christ, have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. And so what happens is in the spiritual realm, we find ourselves being... Uh, lied to, if you will, by society, by secularism, by uh, the evil one, the author of lies, to cast things upon God that are not true, to somehow distort that God is uh, an angry, 
uh, hop up in heaven just waiting to catch us to do wrong. You know, just different lies that we believe, and you probably have friends that you've worked with or in society that believe some of these same type things. And those beliefs have consequences. Um, in John 10, 10, again, he says, I, I have come to you, might have life and have life abundantly. He's still speaking. His followers listen, but we know that there's an adversary, Satan, who devises to steal life from us because we are God's children. So how does he go about doing that? Well, he twists the truth on us. He tells us half-truths. He tricks us about thinking that if you'll just pursue this, this is going to provide life for you. When in fact, those things do not provide life, that he alone is the one who does. He teaches the saying, or he uses people who are influential in our lives to teach us things like, if the good outweighs the bad, we go to heaven. But we know that's not true, right? John 3, 16, God says uh, that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, whoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. So where does eternal life come from? It comes from what I do? Does it? Comes from Christ, right? Comes from placing our trust and our faith in Him. How about I'm going to pull this up on my phone? Some of you, have, uh, we're going to, if you've got a phone in the Bible app, you may want to look at some of this. But how about uh, uh, what's the consequence of believing that God helps those who help themselves? I want to read this in a passage in the message, which is a paraphrase. Uh, I don't usually use this, but the way that uh, it quotes up here, I just love the, I should have pulled this up earlier, but so hold on with me. Matthew 11, 28 through 30 is where I'm going to go. You get good reception down here, not really on Wi-Fi. <laughs> You need the verse, right? Yeah, you have the message. Do you have it in the message? Um, the, the, it's a paraphrased translation. All right, so the message basically says, I'm going to read it here. It says, Come to me, all you who are weary and unburdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. So, what does God promise us? Promises us rest, right? And so the message translation says, Come to me, all you who are basically uh, tired, who are weary, and learn the unforced rhythms of Christ. So what God wants to do is live his life in and through us. He comes to give us life, and out of the abundance of that, that we would find life. And then the last one that I wanted to read <clears throat> is um, one, of the, one of the lies that somehow that we believe is that we are not worthy, that somehow we are less than. And I love what Zephaniah in the Old Testament says here. Uh, in Zephaniah 3, verse 17, God says, The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. And so Israel, was Israel always faithful in the Old Testament? They weren't, were they? They're just like you and me. We're Maybe they don't knock the speaker. Uh, does it still work okay? Yeah, you're knock good. it off and someone's around somewhere. So they're like you and me. They're not always faithful. And so yet God says, Yet I rejoice over you. That's God's thought towards Israel. That's God's thought towards you and I today, that He is rejoicing over us. If we wanted to find that in the New Testament, we need to look no further than the prodigal son. That God, the prodigal son who went off, squandered the inheritance, all that God had given and provided for him lost everything, and yet he comes back, and then you see the father running. He's out there, it's the picture, he's out there on the porch every day looking for his son, and he comes running to him when he comes back, because he's so excited that his son was coming back. Well, what I want to do today is look at, I want to take specifically to scripture, we're going to look at two examples, one Old Testament, one New Testament, of how deceptions have a crippling effect on two different individuals. Any of you know the story of Mephibosheth? You heard of him before, Old Testament. I'm going to call him Bo today because <laughs> I get tongue-tied saying Mephibosheth. And there, it, it's one of the more, more interesting uh, passages to me because you're going along and you're reading here about, uh, about what's happened in Israel. And um, Israel, David had become king.
Saul and Jonathan had um, had been killed in battle. And so you're reading about this passage of things that are going on. And then there's this one verse in 2 Samuel 4. And of all things, it's in a parenthesis. You're like going, wait, is this supposed to be here? And then you go five chapters before hearing anything else about it. It says uh, in verse 4, Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was lame in both feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. So the news about their death in the battle. Saul would have been his granddad. His nurse picked him up and fled, but as she hurried to leave, he fell and became crippled. His name was Mephibosheth. So you're going along, reading the Bible, you're reading through this, and then boom, here's this parentheses, and you go five chapters before you hear anything else. All right. Wait, so what is going on here? Why did we just introduce this character in the midst of all this other stuff in parentheses and then he's gone? And so it almost seems if you're reading it well from a perspective of a meaningless character that God just forgets about. And oftentimes we find in our own lives that that could be true when we face adversity of our own. Of our own. Uh, about 19, I guess we were in East Cobb and West Cobb now, so it would have been about 2004 or five. My wife was driving home from work one day. She wanted to chiropractor after school. She was a teacher, and she had this, <clears throat> something happened to her where all of a sudden things just kind of got out of control as she's driving the car, and she's just got this rush of feeling like hot blood coming down her neck and down into her back. So she didn't know what to do. She pulled over. And uh, called me. I ran and got her, took her down to, uh, I can't think of a heart hospital here in town, but it was, it's, it's down in the downtown area. And I knew that's where I wanted her to be because I knew the reputation of their care there. And so they surmised that she probably had a heart attack because what happens is when you have a heart attack, your endorphins, they dump into your bloodstream. And it creates a tracer that they can figure out, oh, this was a heart attack event. So she's in the hospital for a week. Uh, we did, they did a cath, they did everything, no other evidence of the heart attack. So over the next couple of months, we found, you know, she was just anxious all the time, couldn't go to work, uh, and it just became really disabling, crippling for her. <clears throat> so much so that she ended up having to be on disability. For nine months, uh, it was all that she could basically do until we found her. God took us to the right person to get the help for her. That she had this disease called dysautonomia. And it's where your involuntary and your voluntary nervous system don't act together. They're out of whack. And so it's basically described as if you walked into a jungle and you saw a lion, you'd get excited, right? You'd get anxious thinking, oh, ah, which, which she was in that frame of mind all the time even to get in the shower, to leave the house, anything. And so when you're in that state, what you begin to do is you begin to wonder, has God forgotten about me? This has occurred in my life. Where is God in the midst of this? And so we got her the help that we needed. Um, and so in the process of that, what I saw was, is my wife became unusually dependent in a very healthy way on the Lord himself. The Lord began to minister to her in ways that just would not have if she didn't have if she hadn't taken that time and then pointed to set aside because he was all she had, as she would say. And so uh, in that period of time, it can often seem as it would that five-year interval for, for Bo, as I'm gonna call him, that where is God in all this? You know, well, I'm, I'm crippled for life, you know, I'm, I'm hiding out because in that day, when a new king came, he eliminated all of the former king's family, lest at some point in time in the future they become competition for him, right? That was what was customary in the day. But there's a problem, and the problem was that they did not understand, Mephibosheth's carekeeper did not understand the heart and nature of David. You flip over the second chapter. Samuel chapter 9, verses 3 through 9, this is what it says. The king asked, is there no one still of the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? But this is David asking this. And Ziba answered, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in both feet. Well, where is he? The king asked. Ziba answered, he's at the house, at the house of Maker, son of Amiel in Lodabar. 
So King David had him brought from, from Lodabar, from the house of Maker, son of Emil. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, your servant, he replied. Do not be afraid, David said to him, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? And then he commissioned Ziba to serve and all of his kids to serve all the days. Who was, Ziba was a servant in Jonathan's household to serve Mephibosheth, uh, and they did. And so what happened was, is that uh, for eight years, Mephibosheth lived in hiding. Why was Mephibosheth crippled? The scripture tells us, but what was really behind that? Nursemaid carried him off, fell, dropped him, crippled him both feet. What was behind the what was behind the nursemaid running off with him? She didn't know the truth about David, right? She misunderstood David's intentions towards. The offspring of Jonathan. And that happens to us, doesn't it? We misunderstand when circumstances that are out of control intersect with frame wreck in our life, and we begin to have questions about God. And we would expect it it's natural to have those questions because we have an adversary, as talked about in John 10, who's going to tell us lies about God, who's going to tell you untruths to try to shipwreck you. Because his goal is to is to harm God's children. That's what he's about. The father and author of wives. But yet God displays through David, some people call him a Christ type, that there are characteristics in the Old Testament that David explains or shows that point to Christ in the New Testament. Matthew Henry says this, David's kindness is representative of Christ. Let his kindness to Mephibosheth remind us of the kindness and love of God, our Savior, to fallen man, to you and me, to whom God was under no obligation. He's not under obligation to us. The Son of God seeks this lost and ruined race. He seeks us when we didn't seek after him. He comes to seek and to save us. See, Bo's caregiver missed out on all this because she didn't understand the heart. Well, how does that compare to what we see in the New Testament? In the New Testament, chapter in Luke, chapter 5, we find another story. And this story is of a man who was born lame and his friends. And so uh, you can flip to Luke, chapter 5, if you would like, and read along with me, verses 18 through 25. So it says... Um, Help if I turn to Luke and not John. <laughs> <laughs> All right, verse 18 and following. Um, start with 17. One day as he was teaching Jesus, Pharisees and teachers of the law who had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem were sitting there. And the power of the Lord was present for him to heal the sick. Some men came carrying a paralytic on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay, to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do so because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the lies, through, excuse me, through the tiles into the middle of the crowd, right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, friends, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, Why are you thinking these things in your heart? Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralyzed men, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had, been lying on, and went home praising God. How are the friends' response different than Mephibosheth's keeper? What's the difference? They were bold. 
They were bold. Mm -hmm. yeah. <clears throat> what else? What did what did uh, Bo, Bo's air fever do? Yeah. Ran away, right? Went into hiding. What did these guys do? I ran to them. Picture the scene, if you will, what they had to overcome. You've got this crowd of religious leaders who would have looked down on the rest of people. That's just kind of what they did. They were proud. So they got pushed through this group of people. Now tell them what they were telling them along the way. They had to go up onto a roof, open up the roof, and drop the man in front of them because they knew, they had seen, they had witnessed, they had heard about. Jesus' intentions towards men. Maybe they had seen some of his miracles, maybe they had not, but they knew that he was safe. And so they went to him and they brought their friend. And the result was here's a man who was born lame who now can walk. In Bo's case, because of a lie, here's a man who was whole, a child who was whole, who now was lame for the rest of his life. <laughs> See, there really are consequences to our beliefs. And there's consequences uh, to the people that we hang out with. And so people can either draw us near to God. One of my favorite passages to use in ministry was Proverbs 27, 17. As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. See, it's in the gathering together of like-minded men who are pursuing God that we get sharper, that our faith comes a little bit more alive. In Hebrews 10, I applaud you guys for being here today. As I consult with churches, what I see is that there is beginning to come back from the pandemic. More people starting to come back to church, and churches are starting to get a little bit fuller. You know, it's interesting living in Texas because there's a flippant attitude that in Texas that just kind of says, if you're going to tell us what to do, we're not going to do it. <laughs> well, there's the attitude that we're the only state that uh, has in their, uh, I guess, in their constitution when they join the union, the right to succeed. And so you always hear that in the mind of Texas. It's just kind of like, a, we're better than y'all, right? We're larger, and you know, so we got it going. And that's just the way that it was. You saw a little bit from the pandemic coming back a little bit sooner, but you're beginning to see people coming back to church and back to gatherings, not the thing that's a little bit lacking is, is the secondary gatherings, gatherings like in small groups or, or like this for men's ministry, where you see that those are beginning to come back to the church congregation there is. But scripture tells us in Hebrews 10 that we're not to forsake this someone together as some, as some do, but to gather all the more, to encourage one another, to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, and to do so all the more as you see the day of Christ for his return drawing near. So you're doing what scripture tells us to do, and it's in the fellowship of believers that we grow stronger together. So um, I just want to ask some wrap-up questions, and you can talk about these around your group, um, but you can also write them down to just for reflection later as you go back through the day. <clears throat> when you and that fall, do we run, is our natural tendency to run to God or to run away from God? It's oftentimes, you know, to hide and think, you know, woe is me, I've messed up. Yet what that reveals is to us is what we really believe deep down deep about God. To see that father on the front porch waiting for his prodigal to return home and run to him. When we understand the heart of God, we run back to him. We find him waiting there and running towards us. Does God love us? Well, John 3.16 tells us that. For God so loved the world that while we were yet sinners, so while we were yet not pursuing him, God loved us. He reached out to us. He initiated. Does he promise to provide for us? Matthew 6, 28 through 33 talks about how Solomon in all this glory and all this riches was not dressed nearly as beautiful as the lilies of the field about how God provides for even the birds, that God is our provider wanting to provide for us. And does he bless us? I love this from, uh, and I'm still honestly, 
uh, trying to grapple through what is Paul trying to communicate to us at the beginning of this letter to the Ephesians when he says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. So, if I'm honest with you, I cannot tell you exactly what that means. My mind grapples with that. That in the, He's talking present tense to the people who are there. But somehow in the heavenly realms, God has blessed us with everything that we need as it pertains to life. Is he talking about eternal life? Maybe. That he's given us his life, that we would have an abundant life. Is he talking about... Um, quality of life? Is he talking about spiritual giftedness? He gives us all gifts. Just trying to wrestle through really does that, what does that mean and how does that play out? And I'm still working on that. But promise is, is that he's blessed us, right? And so um, I want to read uh, uh, close by reading a story uh, from a guy that somebody sent me this book a while back and he talks a lot about the guy's kind of an evangelist, but he says he was going to talk to this woman at her house, and that um, for the first 45 minutes was there, she just flittered about the whole house, just rambling, just talking about different stuff. She had two poodles that were yapping the whole time, and finally, at the end of 45 minutes, she took a breath, and she said, what can I do for you, to the guy, the guy's name's Dave. As a matter of fact, I replied and pulled out a straight back chair. You can sit down here and let me pray for you. Cautiously, quietly, she sat down. I pulled up another chair, sat, took her hands, and began to talk about God's love for her, listening carefully to her, but now letting the Holy Spirit guide the direction of the conversation. I began with the wondrous care that God took in knitting together her substance in the darkness of her mother's womb. We quietly discussed how God had designed her with a purpose in mind, that he might wash and sanctify and claim Jesus for himself, that she had a future and a hope in him, and that in his love she could find rest. His peace slowly overcame her anxiety. Tears welled up and spilled copiously. She prayed with me in a voice of intense longing and absolute surrender to receive his life and blessing. Even the poodles were quiet. <laughs> Two days later, Jesse the lady, called and asked me to come back. I did. In the same house, but now a much different environment. She pulled back the veil and poured forth about her life, poured forth about her life, how she was born into abject poverty in rural South Dakota, how her stepfather brutalized her from the time that she was 11, and how her mother berated her, ordering Jesse to do whatever her stepfather told her as anything else could throw them both he could throw them both out mother and daughter into absolute desolation jesse talked about running away at 15 a hard early marriage then finding if not peace at least rest with her second husband and the joy of her one daughter who whoa died unexpectedly barely into her 20s brother day she said you need to know that i always felt like god hated me i was dirty I was filthy. I hated mirrors because no matter how often I looked, all I ever saw was trash, garbage. A sad girl whose only value was set down there beneath my skirt. For 40 years, Brother Day, I've changed clothes four, five, six times a day. I've got chests full of underclothes and closets full of soap, skin wash, shampoo, perfume, alcohol rubs. I wash six, eight, ten times a day, but none of it ever did me any good. When we prayed the other day, something real, really hard left me. And when I went to sleep last night, I had a dream. I was standing in a big field, all sunlit, peaceful, with flowers blossoming everywhere and a soft breeze blowing. It was beautiful, more beautiful than you can imagine. I could see a path way off in the distance. Two people were walking towards me, one looked human, but was entirely made of light, of light. And I just knew that it was Jesus. As they got close, I saw the other was my daughter. She was tall and healthy and smiling. She looked so pretty, Brother Dave, I could hardly breathe. She wore a white dress with little white flowers all around the collar. 
my daughter walked right up to me, looked me dead in the eye, and flashed my that pretty smile. Then, real matter of fact, like she said, Mama, you're finally clean. Right there, I knew it was true, Brother Dave. I'm different now. He washed me. God himself has made me clean. I'm clean, Brother Dave. I'm clean. That conversation happened two years ago now, and Jesse is a much different woman. Her husband told me, Dave, I don't know what happened, but she ain't the same woman she used to be. See, there's transformational power about that Christ has in our life, and it doesn't stop when we come to trust in him as our Savior. It continues day to day. He continues to speak for us, speak to us. That's what he says in John 10, 10. I'm the good shepherd. I hear my voice. They know me. And so what is my encouragement out of this? Well, it's that uh, we would continue to gather together as men, encouraging one another, that we would look for those sheep that have gone into prayer, the sheep that have lost, that we would be able to tell them the story of what God has done and what he is doing in my life. And so that we would know the truth about who God says he is and who God says I am as his child and the rights that I have inherited, that I would study the scriptures, especially the gospels. I had a friend who took a year who spent one year studying nothing but Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four gospels, to really glean the heart and character of God and God's thoughts towards him. And that I would pray daily, asking God to reveal himself to me that day and his thoughts towards me. So in looking at this, as you have a little bit of time to gather around your tables and talk, I would ask you a couple of things. Who is it that has had an influence for good in your life? For good, I'm talking about towards Christ. You know, for me, there was a man in college that spent two years of his life pouring into me. There's been pastors along the way, but there's been other men all along the way who I poured into, and they have done the same with me. So who has God used to mentor you and equip you, and who is somebody that he can use you to invest in? And so that would be my final question today. Who is it around you that you know that needs encouragement? And maybe nobody comes to mind today, but somebody does. And when they do, I want to encourage you to think, to stop thinking, oh, that's just a random thought, but thinking, is this thought that I'm having, is it from God? Or is it from the evil one? When I begin to do that, I begin to realize that, you know what? God's placing that thought on my heart because he wouldn't have me call somebody else encourage. The evil one wouldn't have me call and encourage somebody else. <laughs> so what I do is I find myself having more opportunities for ministry, more opportunities to help others as I have that thought process. So just spend some time with Wood talking about that. Uh, what are some lies, perhaps, or misconceptions that you have believed if not you personally, what are some that are prevalent in our society today? I mentioned one about the angry cop. A lot of people think, think that. They don't know Christ. They don't know his heart. And then secondly, who has God used in your life, and how can he use you to help somebody else today? Let's pray. Father, we all have, uh, we know we're continually, Scripture says, being perfected until the day of Christ Jesus. And I think what that means is, is that somehow that uh, there's things that we still need to learn, Regardless of how much time we spent in the Word, there are things, there's thought, there's habits that need to be corrected. And so, Father, we just yield ourselves to you today because we know that our lives are so much better when you're in control than when we're in control. And so I pray for each man here that, um, for each of us, including me, Lord God, that if there's half-truths that I'm believing or things that I'm not believing correctly about you, that you would reveal to us even now that you would correct those, that you would draw me into the great love that you have through your son Christ for me. And Father, that uh, as we go about our day today, as we started it off with you, that you would bring across our path, even today, Lord God, somebody that we could say an encouraging word to, that we could, um, that you would even give us the opportunity to introduce your son to. So Father, we ask this and pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, guys. <clears throat>
So we'll go ahead with, um, again, quick, uh, relatively quick table discussions here. Um, and, and let's reconvene here just probably about a good three minutes or so, trying to, to get out right before the, the, the 8 a.m. workday, at least for myself here. So maybe just take an opportunity to, to, um, to reflect on the questions from Reverend Smith. Yeah, that's and, and, and then as part of that is we'll close with, with prayer, praises and uh, prayers. a little bit of a walk down memory like four. Supposedly, maybe a story that can prove the answer. Pastor, you know, I'm we were met by the man well on after well past <laughs> and a pastor, you know, and they so he does out of the goods. Jesus loved his identity. It's settled out. We've been breathing throughout and being basic back in the So I didn't bring this up. I wanted it last night. I saw this video, but again, later on, apparently, it's a big setting with a crazy in presentation. It was just a video clip. So she goes, What can I do? It's interesting. We met by keeper away from the influence of the national environment. You know, it's the hearing on that, but that's just the hopeful as it is. Secondly, that would change the story a bit differently. We said she needed to teach her her self esteem. She understands her self esteem, not another. And I would say her esteem, all in house esteem, understand that. Things be ever had some of the skills pretty. I realized they were holding back. I went a little bit further. I had no idea on the style of it. I found it, but I got going. But that interest yeah, that was wonderful. <laughs> so, uh, I yeah, you're up there, so I to do that. Yeah. 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 No, no, no. I wasn't sure if it was on a timer. Right. Close all rooms.
Is it on a timer? I closed and they're coming back. Okay. 24 seconds. Okay. Perfect. Yeah. All right, Bob is back. All right, looks like our breakout room and we're getting reconnected and rejoined. So I, I really just wanted to, to take a moment here, especially for Reverend Smith. There's so much great content, so much that uh, we can reflect on, so many Bible verses. First time for me to learn about this bitch up a bow, I think. But yeah, knowing living the truth as 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 you passionately shared with us and John 10 10, the living an abundant and full life, um, the consequences to our belief. This was another great quote that I wrote down. If it is to be, it is up to me. So that is really me. I'm going to use that with my kids. Maybe my wife also will see that. But really, that, that was that was just uh, so impactful. So thank you so much, Pastor Ross, for introducing us to, to Reverend Smith. And uh, what we'd like to do here, we'll just go table.